to Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel chapter 37. The title tonight is The Breath of Life, The Breath of Life. Ezekiel uh, has told the people, and this was last week, hope you remember some of last week's study, Uh, Ezekiel has told the people about the Lord's promise to restore the land and to renew his people. But what about the nation Israel itself? A divided nation. Divided, you know, there was Israel and Judah. And they didn't have a king or a temple. The remnant would go back to the ruined land and rebuild the temple and the city. But none of the blessings of, that, of, uh, blessings of that Ezekiel promised, you know, God promised through Ezekiel, would come to them at that time. Ezekiel was looking way off into the future to the end of the age when Jesus the Messiah would return and claim his people. Ezekiel told the people that the dead and their nation, the dead and their nation would be raised up to life one day. And the divided nation... Judah and Israel would be reunited. In chapter 37 here, we have Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dead bones. The interpretation of this chapter has to do with the future restoration of Israel. And that restoration has to do with both the nation of Israel as a a whole, as well as the spiritual revival of restoration that the Lord announced in chapter 36. Now, this is an amazing vision. Now, it doesn't have anything to do with the resurrection of the dead saints of the church, all right? Here we're talking about the nation Israel, the nation of Israel. And again, we're not talking about a spiritual or physical resurrection of individuals. It definitely refers to the nation of Israel. And God gives Ezekiel a real living parable. And to do so, he takes him to the valley of dead bones. Verses 1 through 10 covers the restoration of life for Israel. So let's begin with verses 1 through 3 here in chapter 37. And it says, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. So at the beginning of Ezekiel's ministry, the Holy Spirit carried him away to sit among the discouraged exiles by the canal. In chapter 3, verse 14. Later on, the Holy Spirit takes him or, or took him in visions to Jerusalem, to the temple gate, and then back to Babylon. Here, the Holy Spirit carried him away in a vision to a valley that was filled with many dried bones that were scattered over the ground and skeletons of dead bodies from long ago, decomposed, the flesh picked away by flesh-eating birds and animals. These people were killed, chapter 37, verse, uh, verse 9 here, and they might have been soldiers in the Jewish army. The Holy Spirit led Ezekiel around and among these dead bones that covered the valley ground. And as I said, they were scattered everywhere across the ground and they were totally dried out. Then the Lord asked Ezekiel, Son of man, 
Can these bones become living people again? Now, from the human point of view, the answer is obvious. No way. Because for man, it is impossible. But from the divine point of view, nothing is impossible with God. Genesis 18, 4 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? The inference is no. Romans 4, 7, uh, 4, 17, Paul said, It's God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Ezekiel's answer to God's question was, O sovereign Lord, only you know the answer to that. Ezekiel didn't question the power of God. He only stated his conviction that God knew exactly what he was going to do with those dead bones. And he was more than able to do it. Verses 4 through 8. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed as I looked the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over but there was no breath in them. In chapter 6, verse 2, and chapter 36, verse 1, Ezekiel had prophesied to the mountains. In chapter 20, 47, he prophesied to the forests. And now, Ezekiel is commanded by God to prophesy to these dead bones that are scattered all over the valley ground. Hebrews 4, 12 says, The word of the Lord is living and powerful. It not only, the Holy Spirit not only gives life, uh, has life, but it, it gives life. He gives life. The words that I speak, Jesus said, to you are spirit and they are life. John 6, 63. Now God's command in verse 4, by his promise made in verses 5 and 6, Ezekiel believed the promise and he obeyed the command and the bones came together. Psalm 116, 10, the psalmist said, I believed, therefore I spoke. If you lack faith in God's Word, you won't preach the Word. You won't speak about the Word of God, or you won't do the work of God. It says, Then the skeletons were covered with flesh and skin and muscle. So what was lying there on the ground looked like a sleeping army. All these dead bones, they're on the ground. They have muscle, they have flesh, they have skin. But there's no life in it. So again, it looked like a a, a sleeping army all across the ground. The bodies were lacking only one thing, life. Look at verse 9. Also he said to me, that is God said to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Ezekiel spoke, and life came into those bodies. Here's the lesson. We need the Holy Spirit. What happened here is a lot like what happened in the creation of man in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. God took man from the dust of the earth, the Bible says. Ezekiel at least started with bones. God didn't. He started with the dust from the earth. God started with just the dirt. 
And then he breathed life into man. Now what has happened to these bones has taken place in three stages. First, they were scattered bones. And they were as dead as they could be. Secondly, then they came together with flesh and skin and muscle came upon them. Now, they were bodies, but dead bodies. And finally, they were made alive. When the spirit leaves the body, there's no life in it. We must always be ready to obey the Holy Spirit's command, which are in God's Word. He speaks to those who dwell close to Him. And the Holy Spirit still speaks to His chosen vessels in a very extraordinary way, in a still small voice. And there are times when the child of God receives distinct movements of the Holy Spirit in his mind leading in different kinds of ways. We need to be very sensitive to these touches of God. Very sensitive to hear that still small voice that speaks to us. Some people don't feel these things. They don't feel these actions. But maybe if they had a little more perfect heart and feared the Lord, his secret might be made known to them. Notice here in Ezekiel's vision how he draws attention to the fact of the shaking. The bones were rattling and the noise and the coming of the sinews and the flesh and the muscles of the bodies in verses 7 through 8. All of these things took place before there was any sign of life. Notice how God was able to move freely and to do miracles while there was no response to these dead bones. In other words, God can only do His best when I am dead to self. God does His best work with dead people. Pastor Xavier said, the Bible only works for dead people. And it's true, because God says, deny yourself. You know, He did His greatest work in the graveyard. He resurrected Jesus Christ. You know, and when we are dead to ourselves, God can work mighty things. Because as long as we're alive and kicking, we can say, no, God, I, I don't think I want to do that. Or, well, I don't know about that, God. And we begin to question God. And, and okay, then, then he can't work in us. God works with dead people. He works well with dead people. Jesus said, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses, that is, dies, perishes, or destroys their life, for my sake will find it. The Lord is saying that whoever lives only to save his earthly physical life and his ease and his comforts and his acceptance by the world will lose his chance for eternal life. But whoever is willing to give, give up his worldly, earthly life and to suffer and to die, if necessary for Christ's sake, will find eternal life. Every person has a choice. Either they can go for it now and lose eternal life forever, or he can forsake it now, this life, and gain eternal life forever. It's your choice. The true disciple is willing to pay whatever the price of faithfulness is to the Lord, whatever he requires. The price may mean suffering, it might mean martyrdom like Paul. It might mean enduring physical exhaustion or a physical illness in Christ's service like Epaphroditus did. Whatever the specifics of a believer's cross-bearing might be, whatever his, he's, he has to do for the Lord, whatever he's doing for the Lord, it requires being willing to give up safety, security, personal resources, health, friends, job, even life. 
Total death, death to self like these dead bones. There's a story told of a plantation slave in the Old South who was always happy and he was always singing. No matter what happened to him, man, his joy was always abounding. And one day his master asked him, what do you have that makes you so happy? And the slave replied, I love the Lord Jesus Christ because he's forgiven me of my sins and he's put a song in my heart. Well, how do I get what you have, his master asked. Well, you go and you put on your best Sunday suit and you come down here and you work in the mud with us and you can have it. That was his reply. The master said, oh, I'd never do that. Indignantly, angrily, as he rode off in a huff. Some weeks later, the master asked the same question and he was given the same answer. A few weeks later, he came a third time and he said, now, be straight with me. What do I have to do to have what you have? He says, same thing I told you all the other times. In desperation, the owner said, all right, I'll do it. He said, well, now you don't have to do it. You only have to be willing. You see, God doesn't, you know, we think a lot of times in order to serve, I'm going to have to be a martyr. I'm going to have to go through all these tough times. No, we just have to be willing to do it. It's not that a disciple has to be or is going to be a martyr. He just has to be willing to be a martyr if faithfulness to Jesus Christ requires it. Like Paul and like Stephen, like many of the, 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 the you know, Christians of the, of the Bible. You see, it's our life that keeps us from experiencing his life in us. Because my life gets in the way of his life. That's why we, we have to be dead to self you know, when, when, when God wants to use us. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and the, 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 they wanted to make sure that he was dead, that the Roman soldier went up and he took his spear and he, and he cut Jesus? Jesus did not react. There was no, no, no you know, hey, guy, do you know what you're doing? That hurts. Why are you doing that to me? There was no response from Jesus because he was dead. You see, when we quit responding and we're dead to self, that's when God can, again, like I said, already, that's when God can truly work in us and can do extraordinary things with us. You see, again, it's our life that gets in the way of what God's life in us wants to do, what he wants to do with us and in us. You see, our life rebels against what God wants to do with us. We question, our life questions God. We want other choices. Well, Lord, you know, if we can do this in another way, let's, you know, let's, let's try to work that out. Our life argues with God's life that he wants to do work in us. Our life doubts, it complains, it says no to God. We can learn from Ezekiel here that from his action, God did mighty works. When Ezekiel first saw those dry bones, there was no wind in them, nor breath. And yet, because, because, he, because Ezekiel obeyed the Lord's voice in the vision, the breath came and life followed. You see, if we want the Holy Spirit to be with us, we have to speak the word according to God's command. That means simply speaking the message that we receive from the Lord. Proclaiming it. Proclaiming it loud enough so that everybody can hear it. Verse 10. 
Ezekiel said, So I prophesied as God commanded me, and breath came into them, that is the bones, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Notice Ezekiel said here, So I prophesied as he commanded me. He did what God had told him to do. You see, God will bless the word that he commands, not any other word. So we have to stay away from anything that's contrary to God's word. And we have to speak the truth that he gives us to speak. Just like with Jonah. Remember the second time Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and was commanded by the Lord to preach, to the, to, to preach the message to, uh, that, that I tell you? And he did. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 7 says to Ezekiel, You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse. That's what we're called. We're, we're to give the word. The, 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 the results belong to God. We have to do the same thing if we would have our word believed even as his was. Our message is received when it's the word of God through us. It's the word of God that ministers to people. It's the word of God that saves people. Not what I tell them. God only promised to bless his word. When the Lord describes the blessings that come upon the earth by the rain and the snow from heaven like he does in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 55, he says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. We have to make sure that before the word goes out of our mouth that we have received the word of God from his mouth. People don't need to hear what I have to say. They need to hear what God has to say. And when we do that, then we can hope and expect that people will receive it also from us because it's not my word. The Holy Spirit, that is the breath of God, goes with the word of God and only with the word of God. Verse 11 through 14. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves. O my people, and brought you up from your, from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. He says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Ezekiel's not talking about the church here. We're talking about the house of Israel, that is the nation of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Israel is saying, man, we've become old, dry bones. All our hope is gone. They're saying our nation is finished. You see, the people in captivity had gone from one extreme to the other. As long as Jerusalem was still standing and the false prophets, remember, kept telling them, hey, everything's going to turn out okay. You're going to go back to the land. And as long as they kept believing this false hope to, to keep them alive, they were, just, they were going nowhere. And now that Jerusalem has been destroyed, they go to the other extreme. 
Now they're in bad shape, mentally speaking. They were up one day and, and, and now they've hit the bottom. And they're saying, Man, we don't have any hope. This vision is being given to them to let them know that they do have hope. And it's for the whole house of Israel. As the psalmist said in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? You see, what's the cause of the psalmist's depression and loss of hope? It was interrupted communion with God. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? Where is your God, the people were saying. God seemed far away to the psalmist. And so the psalmist was feeding on his tears instead of the word of God. He says, notice, my tears have been my food day and night. Instead of feeding upon the word of God day and night. You see, when we get to that place like the psalmist, and in and, and Psalm 13, I think it's called the, um, oh, I can't, there's a, a name for it, but it's where the psalmist said, you know, three or four times, why is my soul cast down? When we get to that place, when our soul is cast down, when, when, when there's depression and loss of hope, we need to examine our souls, examine our feelings. The psalmist was having his ups and downs here in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 3. He rose above his depression, but his problems didn't change. He did. And again, uh, he said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. This is Psalm 42, verse 11. The psalmist said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He began to examine himself. He began to look inside and say, Why am I feeling like I'm feeling? But at the end of the psalm, he said, Hope in God. And guess what? You find Him praising God. Hope in God, he says, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. That's where we have to end up praising God and getting back in a right relationship, in a right state of mind with God. The question here was to, to God, or from God to, to, to Ezekiel, he said, can these bones live again? The question, can these bones live again, was designed to show Ezekiel the powerlessness of Israel during the exile. God made wonderful promises to the nation of Israel in chapters 33 through 36, but the real problem was, can these bones live? In other words, can a dead and powerless nation in exile under the control of a godless nation, can it be resurrected? And, be, and can it become a living, thriving kingdom again? The answer is no. Because sin had brought about the death of the nation of Israel. And it will bring about the death of nations and individuals as well. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Because sin is a destructive power. Sin destroys and, it, and, it be, and sin really becomes obvious on a personal level, personal level where it destroys human lives. 
Only God can produce life for those who are physically or spiritually dead. Nothing but a miracle will resurrect the dead. But the sovereign Lord said here in verse 12, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves. Suggesting all their places of exile, wherever they were, he would make them alive again. Emphasis was given in this promise to the revival of the nation as a manifestation of God's mighty power. Not human power, God's power. This was a great message of encouragement for Ezekiel and the people that were in exile. You see, if Ezekiel stayed faithful to his call and he proclaimed God's word, the end result would be a life-transforming experience that would result in the resurrection of a whole nation. This is a great illustration too here. There's no greater illustration of the life-changing power of the preached word than what Ezekiel saw in his vision. It has the power to transform those who are dead in trespasses and sin and to make them new living creatures in Jesus Christ. God has always used the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe what was preached. The enabling power of the Holy Spirit is also pictured in this passage. The Holy Spirit empowered the dead and dry bones and gave them life and liveliness. And this was Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. When he was unable to live the life of a believer, remember he said, oh, I know what's right to do, but I always end up doing what's wrong. I want to do right, but I can't because there's a greater power in me, which is sin. He wasn't able to live the life of a believer and be faithful to the commands of God without the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the same for us. The Holy Spirit is not an option He's not an option. He's not a luxury. He's a necessity. We need Him. And clearly, there's a spiritual application in this vision for any individual, any ministry that needs new life and new power from God. Too many people, too many times, too often, God's people are are like that standing army. They got bones, they got muscle, they got sinew, but no life. No life. They're not alive. How does the life come? Through the Holy Spirit using the faithful preaching of God's Word. Charles Spurgeon said this, Decayed churches can most certainly be revived by the preaching of the Word accompanied by the coming of the heavenly breath from the four winds. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. And from time to time, in response to, people, to God's people's prayers, the Lord has seen fit to send a new breath of life to His church and to His servants and to ministries. And we should be praying for that blessing today. That blessing is still for today. Then verses 15 through 28 covers the reuniting of Israel. Let's begin with verses 15 through 23. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it. For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick and they will become one in your hand. 
And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all of their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now, this is the last action sermon that Ezekiel had to perform. He takes two sticks that would become one. And they did. The people saw what he did but they didn't understand what he meant by it. So he explained that the Lord would gather the people together to one place, to their own land of Israel. He would make, he would make them one nation, obedient to one king, and the most important thing, that they would worship one God. There wouldn't be any more idol worship. There wouldn't be any more disobedience to God's word. But what would keep the people united? The first thing, the Lord would cleanse them, and renew spiritual life within them so that they could no longer ha- so that they no longer had any desires to compete with one another old jealousies and hostilities would be gone and Israel and Judah would be together and they would humble themselves and they would seek the Lord a second reason is that there there would be one king that would be the messiah And he would shepherd them with love and grace. And he would be their prince forever, verse 25 says. Forever. And he would serve as the prince of peace. Third, the Lord would order and bless the land so that the nation would be one. And this will be explained more in chapter 45. The nation would be governed by a covenant of peace, which is the new covenant that Jeremiah wrote about in Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 24 through 28. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever." Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. God gave David a covenant that said his throne would live on forever and his seed would be on the throne continually. Now, when he said David, this doesn't mean that David would personally be king, but it's the figure that's used to describe the fulfillment of the promise that David's seed, ancestry, will rule on the throne of Israel. 
And the seed that will fulfill the prophecy is Jesus Christ. He's the king of kings, and he will come back to earth to set up his rule over Israel. Israel will be the greatest nation on the face of the earth, and the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, is Israel's time of glory. And the key to that glory is the king of Israel, which is Jesus Christ, who is of the seed of David. Verse 24 says here, They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Part of the restoration of Israel has to do with the character of the Israelites. Here the prophecy is that they will be a righteous people. They're going to obey God's commands, which is quite a difference to what Israel has done in the past. The great restoration won't only include a place, their peace, and a Messiah for the people. It will also include purity of the people. Remember, he said he was going to give them a new heart, take the heart of stone out and give them a heart of flesh where they could obey his commands and statutes and do them. But necessary for the nation's unity will be the new temple where the glory of God would dwell. In their wilderness days, remember, Israel had the tabernacle to unite the camp of Israel with each tribe that was assigned a specific place to set up their tents. The temple in Jerusalem was also a source of unity because three times a year the men were required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate feasts and the people were allowed to offer sacrifices only at the temple. So in closing, whether it's the children of Israel or the Christians in the church today, the Lord wants us to be united. The psalmist said in Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Paul pleaded with the Corinthian believers to work at and promote unity in the church, 1 Corinthians 1.10. He exhorted the Ephesian believers to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. And the word endeavor means to spare no effort. Paul was saying, whatever you needed to do to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, do it, as long as it wasn't without compromise. But whatever we need to do, we need to for the peace of, uh, uh, of the church, for the peace of the brothers and sis- of the sisters. Sometimes it takes prayer, sacrifice, and patience to keep the unity of God's people. But you know what? it's more important that we do keep that peace and unity. Jesus prayed that his people might be one and show to the lost world the living unity between Jesus and his church and among each other as believers and as local churches. Because you see, a divided church is a weak church. A divided church is not a good testimony to the grace and the glory of God. God's people today need the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit to give us new life from God and new love for each other. Father, we thank you once again for your word. And Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, the pneuma, the breath, the breath of life. And without the Spirit of God, there's no life in us. We might be alive, but there's no life. No life of God. 
We live according to the flesh. We live according to the world's standards. We live according to the, to, to the lust of our flesh. But there's nothing holy. There's nothing worthy. It comes from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And we, when He comes into a life, He changes our desires. We, we, we no longer want the old desires of life. We crave the new desires. We want new desires. You know, and if you're here tonight, man, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we pray that you would choose Christ tonight, that you would desire that new life in Christ. And it comes through just simply praying, Lord, Forgive me of my sins. I confess to you, Lord, that I am a sinner. And, and I want you to cleanse me and wash me and make me brand new and help me through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk a pure and holy life and, and to thank Christ, to thank him for dying on the cross for you and to walk with him all the days of your life. Father, we thank you again for sending your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to teach us about his wonderful name, the words of Dr. Alan Redpath. So Lord, may we ever be learning about Christ. And if you said that prayer tonight, the Bible says that the Lord wrote your name down in the book of life. And you're headed to heaven. Continue to walk and abide in Christ all the days of your life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If, if you said that prayer tonight, if you received.